next up, we are going to have Kristen Marks. Kristen's an assistant professor at uh, Cornell, and uh, she has been very involved with the management of Hep C and Hep C HIV. She is a, a member of the AASLD IDSA panel for uh, what we should use, and she's going to tell us what we should use. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and thanks for coming back. I know it's such a gorgeous day um, outside. So yes, I'm going to talk about current management, so I'm really going to talk about currently available medications. And um, I think I gave this talk last year at this conference, and I put in bold where there's been the changes, and they're dramatic, even from one year. So um, you know, some of the slides are the same, and I updated them to, to show how dramatically things have changed, even in one year. So after this talk, I hope you'll be able to describe the options for initial treatment, um, talk about understand when resistance testing should be done for hepatitis C prior to initial treatment, and also describe the current approaches to monitoring after treatment. So I am going to focus on the um, IDSA ASLD guideline recommendations. There's also recommendations from EASL as well, uh, and I'm not going to talk about those. Um, so the direct-acting antivirals, by now everybody's familiar with them. If you were here last year, you heard my, my uh, ways of remembering them, but if you weren't, I'm going to go through them really quickly because people often tell me this is what they remember about my talk is these uh, drug names. So we have different classes just like HIV, and um, there are protease inhibitors, polymerase inhibitors, both nukes and non-nukes, and then there's another class that's the NS5A inhibitors. So the protease inhibitors all end in Previer, easy to remember, PR for protease and Previer. The Bouviers are the polymerase inhibitors, both the non-nukes and the nukes both end in Bouvier. And the um, Asvirs are the NS5A, and I remember that AS looks like 5A backwards. So now you have it, the secret to remembering these drugs. I always say this is payback for all of you HIV providers who have been rattling off drug names forever. <laughs> now the Hep C providers are having the last laugh. So um, you can combine them in different ways, and here are the ones that are currently available. So what, what um, is are commonly used are uh, nuke-based regimens, and then there's also some that are non-nuke uh, that are commonly used as well. So with HIV, we have this concept of nuke sparing. We talked about some of it in the cases, for reasons of toxicity or resistance or renal insufficiency, it might be done. For um, hep C, a lot of it has to, may have to do with affordability or preference or often renal insufficiency. The only available nuke, sofosfavir, uh, there's limitations to dosing it when the creatinine clearance is less than 30. It's not recommended. It's not approved to be used in that way, and there's kind of you know, uncertainty about how to dose it when people have a creatinine clearance less than 30. Drug-drug um, interactions are another common reason that you may choose one or the other strategy. So those are the available, and we'll go through kind of in some more detail the particular regimens. So first, though, to kind of just frame the talk, I'm going to give you a case of a 64-year-old African-American woman. And pay attention to this case because all the questions, the knowledge questions, are going to be based on this case. So it's a 64-year-old African-American woman who has HIV and hep C with genotype 1B. She has cirrhosis and an HCVR need of 88,000. She's treatment naive. She had never wanted to take interferon in the past. And she's cirrhotic based on a biopsy done eight years ago. She also more recently had a transient elastography. And what you're thinking, why would you do that in someone you know has cirrhosis? It does give some information additional about how uh, likely they are to decompensate or have you know, some kind of untoward event. And a, and a um, 
score of 20 kilopascals is actually quite high. So I'd be concerned, you know, and make sure that person has had an EGD, things like that, that they're up to date on all that, which they should be done anyway, but I don't know. At our institution, there can be a three to four month wait for an EGD depending on your insurance. So these are the people I, you know, pick up the phone and call about if I know they are at higher risk. So she did have her EGD, she didn't have varices. She had an MRI, she has no liver cancer. Um, and in terms of her HIV, it's well controlled, and CD4 counts 256. You'll notice as part of portal hypertension, t CD4 counts can be a bit lower in patients with cirrhosis. Um, she's doing well, and she's on tenofovir FDC, and as well as darunavir, ritonavir. So that's her current ARV regimen. In terms of her other past medical history, she does have, um, she had a history of chronic hep B, and her HBV DNA is not detected on the tenofovir FTC. But it had been elevated in the distant past. When you kind of look through her records, you saw she was viremic at some point. Um, she has hypertension, high cholesterol, and some renal insufficiency, and had used alcohol heavily in the past, but hasn't for eight years. So let's choose a regimen. So question one, prior to hep C treatment, she needs a switch in her ARVs for optimal management with most available hep C regimens. We haven't decided which one we're gonna use yet. Um, which of the following switches should not be made in this patient? Would you not want to go from tenofovir to TAF, TDF to abacavir, RATC, darunavir to dalutegravir, or all of these are fine and may be considered for in terms of managing her. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always okay, so... I'm not gonna give you the answers now, we'll, come, we'll go through in the talk, but it looked like the, um, most people thought uh, you may not wanna switch to the back of your 3TC right now, and then uh, the next most common was that, you know, all these are fine switches. So in terms of testing for hep C resistance, which would be indicated in this patient with hep C genotype 1B? You would wanna do the testing if she'd failed pegriba in the past, if you plan to use sofosbuvir valpatasvir, if you plan to treat with Grisepravir Elbisvir, or no, resistance testing isn't necessary here, or hmm, what's, what's a RAV? All of these are up for grabs. Okay, so m most people thought resistance testing is not needed here, and then the next highest was the Grisepravir Elbisvir. Should be able to discuss that in a little bit. So last question, a regimen with an eight-week duration should be used for this patient. It's effective and it saves money. So is that true or false? Okay, and over kind of overwhelmingly people thought false. So these are sort of the minimum things that um, I think people should know before, before treating patients. And I crossed out interferon eligibility, and that's because no longer is interferon part of any of the recommended regimens. I think we should all give a hand of applause. That, um, interferon is now gone from the recommended regimen list. But all of these other considerations, sometimes you use ribavirin, so you want to think about um, childbearing potential. There are you know, lots of drug interactions with the HIV medications. We'll get into that. And then we already talked about some of these other things to do with staging. and and uh, genotype and so forth. So, so these are the approved regimens. And as I said, we're not using those to the far left. We're no longer using the interferon. Um, 
And if you look at sort of just what genotypes they cover, you can see there are a couple that are pan-genotypic, and the newest one, South Belpatosphere, is a pan-genotypic uh, regimen. So it can be used against any of the hep C genotypes, which makes things a little bit simpler. The uh, others that we primarily use are for genotypes one and four, five and six as well in some cases. So an another important um, just concept now is that really HIV, HCV co-infected persons, for the most part, should be given the same regimen as what we use for mono-infection. So remember in the interferon days, the co-infected patients were much harder to treat. We often treated longer and things like that. For um, As you kind of move to the right on this graph, you can see that cure rates are very high with many different regimens, and, it, and they're essentially identical to people who, who have hep C mono-infection. So you can use the same regimens. Um, I will get into one caveat about the eight-week um, eight duration issue in a minute. So what are these regimens? So we talked about the patient in this case has genotype 1B. Here are the approved initial or the recommended initial treatment regimens for 1B. And so you can see if a patient doesn't have cirrhosis, there's six options, six good options. The ones at the bottom two are, are not made in a co-formulated version and so therefore kind of used less often. The top four um, are, all, are all good options. They have not been compared head to head. Um, the two I have in bold are the two newly approved ones. So I'm going to discuss those more in this talk, and that's the reason that they're in bold. Same thing in the cirrhosis section. There's four um, approved, uh, four good options for treating cirrhosis. And you can see one um, thing to note with the prod regimen, what we call the prod regimen, there's no ribavirin as there is with genotype 1A. I'll show you in a minute. And that's because it's been studied in genotype 1B, and it's clear that even in the setting of cirrhosis, there are very cure good cure rates, and you don't need to use ribavirin. So we have four great options for treating genotype 1B, none of which have cirrhosis, all of which, I mean, none of which have ribavirin, even for patients who have cirrhosis, and all are just 12 weeks long. So that's amazing progress to have those choices. And a lot of times, which one you use will depend on the drug interactions. So how does 1A different? This is where you want to start, you start thinking about doing resistance testing. So for patients who have high-level NS5A resistance, so that would be resistance to um, the Elbasvir, because that's the NS5A drug in that combination. So th in that setting, you want to do the resistance testing for Elbasvir, Gazeprovir, and I'll show you why in a couple slides. Uh, and, and, and if you found resistance, you would either not use that regimen or you would have to extend the duration and, and add some ribavirin. Um, for the prod regimen in the setting of genotype 1A, that's when we add in ribavirin, and then the other options pretty much stay the same. You notice in cirrhosis, we don't, um, the prod regimen wasn't, <coughs> excuse me, recommended just because it was a longer duration, not because it doesn't work, it was because it's a 24-week duration and because, you know, uh, most uh, people would prefer a 12-week regimen that was left as an alternative regimen. So here's what I was talking about with the resistance testing. So Elbasvir Gerceptivir, great results with giving it for 12 weeks, but when you kind of looked at the details of the phase three study, Patients with one, genotype 1B did better than genotype 1A. So there was 99% cure rate compared to 92% with 1A. And then when you look at the real details in that red box, you can see, um, oh, I do have a pointer, good, that uh, when you had the high-level NS5A resistance, and there's particular mutations I'll show you in a minute, that's when you really see a drop-off in terms of response. So in that setting, you wouldn't want to use this regimen for just 12 weeks. So how common is that? Well, 
it's relatively common, 10 to 15% of people at baseline, never having been treated for hep C before, will have one of these polymorphisms, or, or what we call RAVs, resistance-associated variants, that will confer uh, high-level resistance to Elbazir. So in that setting, you know, that's when you would want to use the other, um, uh, other strategy. Other things that may um, affect whether to do resistance testing are the genotype, the regimen you plan to use, and whether they've had prior drug treatment. So in prior drug treatment that hasn't worked, you certainly would want to do resistance testing. But for treatment-naive patients, it really comes down to when you're using Brisepravir Elbazir for 1A, or if a person has genotype 3 and cirrhosis, independent of which regimen you're going to use, you're going to want to check for these, because all of those regimens have NS5As, and, and the presence of it can affect what you do. And I'll show you that in a few minutes, too. This is what the testing looks like. Looks just like our HIV resistance test come back. You'll also get the subtype as part of it. So these are the mutations that are of importance. Um, and if you actually look at the package insert for Grisepravir albosphere, it tells you specifically how much each of these sort of impacts. They're different, like 28 is a bit wimpier than the other one. So if you want to kind of know how much of an effect a particular mutation has. So what about eight-week regimen? So uh, um, the minimum criteria to be eligible this, for this are having no cirrhosis, so our patient is not eligible, having a, a lowish viral load, and, and it being an initial treatment. So this is the criteria that was um, kind of recommended for use of phosphorylipidipasphere for eight weeks. So again, our patient doesn't recommend it. If you look at the guidelines, they, um, they don't recommend it at all for co-infection, and that's because co-infection was also a risk for relapse. When you look at kind of real-world cohort data, you know, it's a little bit conflicting. Some studies show um, uh, other groups, including African-American patients, are, are at higher risk of relapse um, in some other scenarios. So I think, you know, it should be done using an eight-week regimen. should be done sort of at the discretion of the practitioner and the, and the sort of who knows all the characteristics of that patient, but I just wouldn't use it all on co-infection. Have I ever used it? Yes, because sometimes that's all you can get. And, and I'll, as I'll show you in a minute, the cure rates aren't so terrible. It's, probably, it's better than doing nothing. But if you can get 12 weeks, you should try to get it. So here's the 8 versus 12 week and kind of why in co-infection, one of the reasons that, that you know, this guidance was made to not use 8 weeks. So this studied um, sofosphere to clasvir, so that's another uh, uh, nuke NS5A combo for either 8 or 12 weeks. And for treatment, naive patients, in red, you can see the eight-week did much worse than the 12-week arms. And then they went back and they tried to look at, was there some threshold, a viral load um, below which, you know, it would, it seemed like everybody was cured with eight weeks. And that threshold was two, was, um, two million. And that's different than what was seen with sofosphere lodiposphere, where I told you the threshold was six million. So what's the real threshold? I don't think we know. Um, so for that reason, I just, you know, I wouldn't use it. And definitely don't use it for cirrhotic patients. You'll have higher relapse rates. What about sofosphere velpatosphere? So that's now approved for 12 weeks. I mentioned it's pan-genotypic. You can use it for genotype 1 through 6. And both naive and treatment experienced, it's been studied. And here's the co-infection data uh, in uh, naive and treatment experience. You can see amazing cure rates. Um, the few patients who, who weren't cured, there were two relapses. And then the others were really more just loss of follow-up or withdrew consent. When they looked at those relapses, there wasn't like a clear theme. They didn't, you know, um, they didn't have baseline RAVs, so it was kind of hard to predict who they were. So there isn't any recommendation for genotype 1 for checking for RAVs prior to treatment because it doesn't seem like whether they're present or absent. It really affects the response rates for genotype 1. 
for genotype 3, it differs, and I'll show you that data. Um, so what about sulfosporyl valpatazvir in terms of drug interactions? Well, if you use sulfosporyl lodiposvir, you can see they're almost identical, except for one category, which is efavirenz. It's not recommended to use valpatazvir with efavirenz, and that's because uh, efavirenz in, is, um, induces the CYP3A4, and valpatazvir levels end up lower with efavirenz. So it's not recommended to use that. Other than that, it's identical to what you've been doing with sulfosporylidiposphere. Same types of interactions with um, acid-reducing drugs. So it's very similar. If you use sulfosporylidiposphere, you're ready to use this. What other drug interactions do we worry about? These are kind of the main class I worry, main classes I worry about, and I always ask systematically those. Amiodarone's very important. Not that many people are on it, luckily. <laughs> um, if you're gonna use sulfosporylidiposphere, there's been heart block associated with that, so that's a very important one to ask. The other ones you're often worried about, you know, the, the reducing the effectiveness in terms of the hep C treatment when you're talking about the acid-reducing drugs, and then some of these you're more worried about the um, drug levels. But this is the key. If you haven't seen this website, which I bet most of you are familiar with it by now, this um, just hep drug interactions, the Liverpool site, you can easily click off all the patient's medicine. It spits out a really nice up-to-date report, and you can know what drug interactions you have to worry about. So uh, what about this patient's drug re regimen? Remember I said she was on tenofovir, FTC, darunavir, ritonavir, and we wanted to choose a regimen. So she had genotype 1B, so remember they're in cirrhosis, so there were four good options. Um, however, she was, we, we had to do something with her HIV regimen. We can't use, for the most part, there's a few exceptions, the protease inhibitors for hep C together with the HIV protease inhibitors in general. It's, it's difficult to do that. So probably the regimens with protease inhibitors were out. So that left um, sofosporylidiposphere or sofosporylidiposphere. But the caveat with that is when you use sofosporylidiposphere, let's just take that for example, with tenofovir, in the setting of using a boosted PI, you can get high uh, tenofovir drug levels. And so this is showing you uh, when you use tenofovir with ritonavir boosted PIs and lidiposphere sofosfovir, you get drug levels that are either higher than using it in any other way. So, and it kind of goes outside of what is considered the, um, you know, available safety data. Although there has been uh, information on this com using this combination in the form of you know abstracts or posters and things like that. It probably makes sense to try to do something about this three-way drug interaction to avoid those high tenofovir levels, particularly in a patient like ours who had a low creatinine clearance anyway, and you're kind of going to be more risk for tenofovir toxicity. So what can we do? So here is what the guidelines say. I don't have time to go through each scenario, but I'm just showing you it kind of, if they have abnormal creatinine, if they have um, a low creatinine clearance, you want to kind of avoid doing some of these things, and then in other situations, it might be okay to monitor. So our patient, we're going to try to avoid it. So what can we do? Well, TAF, we talked about TAF a lot today. Um, TAF is also, you end up with increased tenofovir levels when you use TAF, just like you do when you get TDF, when you use it together with lidiposphere, sofosfavir. However, because the overall levels of, of tenofovir are so much lower when you use TAF than when you use TDF, um, even though you get an increase, the, you know, kind of absolute levels are, are um, only 20% of what you, they are when you use TDF, the sort of area of the, of the curve. So you end up with a, you know, a higher tenofovir exposure than if you weren't on sofosfavir lidiposphere, but nowhere near as high as when you were taking TDF. So for that reason, 
it's okay to use the combination of TAS with the boosted PI with phosphates here. So that's probably the best solution would be to switch our TDF to TAS. Um, the other option would be to switch the boosted PI to something like dolutegravir. You know, I think it, you can individualize it based on what makes the most sense for the patient. But I would do something in that setting um, to make it safer in terms of the tenofovir exposures. So what about genotype 4? And what I did here, this list, and then where you see things crossed out, that's what's different than last year. So genotype 4, essentially all that's different is they took off the SOC riba. It just doesn't work as well. Genotype 2, same thing. The new drug, new exciting, is cephalosporin valpatasvir. It works extremely well for genotype 2 and so well, and it's less side effects because there's no ribavirin that everything else was essentially eliminated. So there's now just one recommendation for, uh, that's recommended for genotype 2. And here's the data. You can see in the soft valpatasvir arm, there are actually no virologic failures. The one patient it didn't work on was this lost to follow-up, compared to soft ribo where there were six relapses. Now, they didn't have a lot of cirrhotics in the study, so I do, I'm kind of looking out for more data on cirrhotic patients, but it appears, it's definitely the uh, regimen of choice for, uh, for genotype 2 now. Genotype 3, similarly, sophopatosphere is now an option. Sophopatosphere remains an option, and interferon's gone, yay. Um, so this is where the RAV testing comes in for the Y93H, and that's only in the setting of cirrhosis. So let's go through what is that about. So starting with sophopatosphere, which was the first good treatment we had for genotype 3, it was clear that it worked very well for people with low fibrosis. Here's the zero to three, we're 96 percent, but not so good with people with cirrhosis. And that was whether you determined they were cirrhotic by biopsy or, or, or transient elastography or fibrosis. It really didn't matter how you determined cirrhosis. It, it wasn't as good for 12, if you just gave just soft DAC for 12 weeks with cirrhotics, it just didn't have great response rates. So people started, you know, doing things, extending it, adding in ribavirin, um, for that reason. Uh, and then Valpatosphere came along, and, and it was, again, studied for 12 weeks without ribavirin, and you can see it did better in the setting of cirrhosis. Here's the 93% cure rate for the people who were, uh, who were treatment naive, compared to soft riba, where it was an inadequate cure rate, even with 24 weeks. So definitely an improvement with soft Valpatosphere, but 93%, you know, at this point, we're looking for closer to 100, right? And so they broke down and looked at who are the people in this kind of 93% or who, who didn't this work for? And pretty much when you looked, they, it came down to this Y93H mutation. So if you didn't have the RAV, there was a 97% cure rate. If you had it, it went down to 84%. So, you know, I guess 84% is not terrible, but you could potentially do something to improve that. You could either go longer or add in ribavirin. And, and the recommendation is to consider adding in ribavirin for those patients. So uh, that's why to check for that Y93H. If you find it, you can add in some ribavirin and hopefully re improve their responses based on, you know, speculation of what we know about adding in ribavirin. It hasn't been studied yet. So that's kind of covering all the genotypes. Now what about this hep B reactivation issue? Um, so this was the black box. <laughs> Uh, the the um, safety communication sent out by the FDA that talks about the risk of Hep B reactivating. And let me just go through in a little bit detail. So it really came from this um, DARES reporting system because, as you can imagine, surface antigen positive Hep B, you know, patients were excluded from most of the phase three studies. So this kind of was 
you know, post-marketing treatment that was, was seen. Um, so um, there were 24 cases that have been reported associated with the timing of DAA treatment. And there were some real poor outcomes, which is why you know, this is getting, I think, so much attention. If they just reactivated, nothing bad happened. I mean, it's still bad, but this, we have actually people who died or needed transplant at least 24 people. And often that was related to, you know, may have been potentially prevented be, uh, had there not been a delay in diagnosis. I don't think people were necessarily expecting this to happen. So when they saw transaminases rise, uh, rising and things like that, they were thinking it was a, tox um, a toxicity of the medications they were giving, of the hep C protease inhibitors at first, and they weren't really suspecting hep B, but eventually it was figured out. But the people who got hep B treatment early on, they didn't seem to have those bad complications. So it is important if you identify it to kind of, you know, start treatment. Most of them, um, uh, the reactivations occurred within the first four to eight weeks of the hep C treatment. So this occurred pretty quickly, actually. And then sort of who's at risk for this happening? So of these 24 cases, they did see that tw seven of them had had detectable hep B at baseline. Most of those were probably surface antigen positive, but um, as Alex Montes said, there, some of them could be, have this occult hep B where they're surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, but have some DNA positive. That's another scenario where you can see this. You do have to check for the DNA in those core antibody, those isolated core antibody patients. Um, four of them were surface antigen with undetectable hep B DNA, so I think those are kind of the real reactivations. Three were surface antigen negative and had undetectable hep B DNA. So that's probably those isocore antibody positive patients, and then 10 were unknown. If you kind of extrapolate from what we know about hep B reactivating in other immunocompromised states, so let's say with, you know, rituximab or chemotherapy, um, this is my own addition, that this is sort of the order I consider them at risk. So the people who are surface antigen positive with low DNA levels, otherwise they'd be on hep, treatment, hep B treatment, those are the highest of reactivating. The next highest are the people who are, um, if they don't have, if they, if they don't have surface antigen, are the people who don't have surface antibody, and then sort of the lowest risk are those people who have surface antibody. Remember, people who are like this, they were just vaccinated. They have no risk at all, right? So we're only concerned about people who are core antibody positive when we think about this risk of reactivation. Any of these can theoretically reactivate, but this is the least likely, the people who have surface antibody. So what does the FDA say to do? It's a little bit vague, but basically they say to screen for hep B and they tell you how to do it, including doing the hep B DNA, to monitor, especially in that early period, if you see anything, you know, transaminase rise, et cetera. Um, for people like this, you would, would, if they're DNA positive, you may wanna actually initiate treatment. I think that's kind of how people have broken down on this. If they're DNA positive, treat them. If they're not, monitor. And if, um, and then, you know, we want to counsel them if they have, if you're the people that are in that just kind of monitoring group to, if they have any symptoms to come in and get tested. So that's definitely a new addition to hep C treatment and something I wasn't doing before this warning came out. I mean, I, I you know, theoretically, if someone's enzymes would rise, I would think about hep B, but I was not monitoring for it. So let's go back to our questions. Prior to hep C treatment, this patient needs a switch in her ARVs for optimal management with most regimens. Which of the following switches should not be made in this patient who has hep B um, surface antigen positive and had DNA positive in the past? Would you not want to do the tenofovir to TAF? Number two, number three, or all of them are fine. OK. 
So the correct answer is number two. And that's because, you know, really because she had the DNA positive in the past, you're actually treating her Hep B with extrafavir. And 3TC alone is suboptimal treatment for Hep B. You can get breakthroughs and resistance with that. So you want to keep on either tenofovir or TAF. Okay. So we improved there. Let's see. And testing for Hep C resistance or RAVs would be indicated in this patient with HIV Hep C genotype 1B if she had failed in the past, you can treat with Sofvel, plan to treat with Grazeprevir, Elvisvir, or no, it's not necessary. And hopefully now you know what RAVs. Okay, so uh, here it's a tie between the right answer and wrong answer. The right answer is no, but it was tricky. She's genotype 1B. If she's 1A, you're right. With Grazeprevir, Elbisvir, you want to do that resistance testing. 1B, it's not necessary. Remember, the 1Bs did well whether they had it or not. So that was a tricky one, but I still feel like you learned the concept, but it was just that little, I was a little tricked. Okay, a regimen with an eight-week duration should be used for this patient. True or false? I'm not giving you very much time on this one. patient with cirrhosis, I should say. Right, so the correct answer is no, because she has cirrhosis and co-infection. We wouldn't treat it, but improve there. I just want to, before I hand this off, mention, so after treatment, you know, we talked about still monitoring for uh, managing liver disease. There are liver cancers that are expected, so we need to continue screening our cirrhotic patients. We talked about the monitoring. The other important thing to think about in patients we treat is reinfection. And particularly MSM patients who are recently infected with hep C and you're treating them pretty soon after recent infection, those patients seem to be at the highest risk. And actually, a, a, a third of them will get reinfected in the first three years um, in this group. So that's a group you really need to counsel about how to prevent um, acquiring hep C again. And um, there is some new data a relatively new split from last year's CROI about treating hep C. They tried a shortened six-week regimen, and it didn't work so great for people with high viral loads, but um, there's going to be some data very soon about using eight weeks, so to be continued if in acute C, whether we can give an abbreviated treatment. So I think that's all. So thank you very much, and uh, here's some resources. And I'll let Ken take over. Do I introduce you? No, okay. you have a seat. Okay. And uh, you can take down or switch out Alex's name tag. And uh, we have a couple of minutes for questions. Any questions? And I think someone's going to come down the aisle collecting questions as well. But if you want to come up to a mic, that would be great. And there we go. Have a genotype uh, 1A with RAVs that sums up a tier. Because that's what the uh, insurance company wants me to use which is better than I was doing last year when they didn't allow me to treat any of my patients. So I now have them on four, uh, four months uh, with ribavirin. Uh, so knowing my experience from interferon with ribavirin, how often should I be checking their CBCs? When they become anemic, at what point do I start giving them erythropoietin? Or do you have another uh, way of managing them when they become an anemic? That's a great question. So. Um, you know, so first of all, that is what's recommended if there's RAVs. And the limited experience is that if you give four months and add in some ribavirin, it works very well. It's just not that many patients were studied. But the ones that were, uh, I think it was a, you know, it was a very high cure. I think it was 100% or maybe 1% was or something. It was just small numbers. So 
that's why you know it didn't make and it had ribavirin so how to manage ribavirin toxicity the first thing is when you're not using interferon ribavirin toxicity is so much easier to deal with so <laughs> interferon caused bone marrow suppression ribavirin's main side effect is in hemolytic anemia when you don't have the bone marrow suppression often people can just compensate for it um, and the other thing that was was discovered, you know, kind of with DAA use was that it, it wasn't, you know, when with in interferon days, we were very reluctant to dose reduce ribavirin. It seemed to, in, you know, having that full dose ribavirin was very important. Now with the DAAs, it seems to be less of an issue. And if you run into uh, anemia, usually if the hemoglobin goes below 10, you can actually just dose reduce the ribavirin um, rather than having to give EPO. So it's very rare now. I've maybe done it once in the past three years to ever have to use EPO for any reason. And um, so you really just can dose reduce the ribavirin and, and, not, and manage the anemia that way. So you'll see less anemia because the interferon is not on board. Assuming you have uh, you know, an SDR12, uh, how often is it or is it necessary to repeat the hep C PCRs or for either recurrence or reinfection? Right, so the question is post-treatment, post-successful treatment, how often to monitor you know, for, for reinfection. So I think it depends on the patient's risk. You know, there's, I see probably like you see all range, people who are still engaging in whatever risk behaviors, whether it's sex or drug use or intranasal drug use. And then people who, you know, their risk factor was a long time ago and they've had hep C and they're not doing any of those things. So if there's someone who, um, you know, doesn't have current risk factors, once you establish SDR12, I think most people probably repeat it one more time in a year. So I find it hard to, if, if I try to say goodbye to patients, after that first visit, they come back anyway. So I usually see them one more time, <laughs> you know, repeat it and counsel them again about everything for the future and then say goodbye, assuming they have no advanced liver disease. If they had advanced liver disease, obviously I'd keep monitoring them and, and managing their liver disease. For patients who have ongoing risk, I either, you know, will continue to do the um, assessments, but it's recommended every six months to a year. So you can do, um, you know, if it's patients with HIV, you're monitoring their liver tests and you can do an annual you know, diagnostic labs are not perfect. So, so what we do is tell people at SVR12, you've achieved SVR12, congratulations, uh, but you're going to come back once more at some point, and if they're negative again, then we say, guess what? Now you really are officially cured. And patients seem to like that follow-up too because yeah. they do need reassurance. But even after I do that, patients show back up. Goodbye. I thought we were done seeing each other. And they just want to make double sure. You know. Down here in the front. Triple sure. Um, with the NS5A inhibitors with uh, velatosphere uh, compared to rivastivir, what makes velatosphere pan-genotypic uh, as far as the chemistry or pharmacology? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure I can answer that question. Can you, Ken? I mean, it's a different, you know, it's a different molecule, and it, um, it just somehow works against all the genotypes. I don't know chemically, though. Does anybody know that? What makes it pangenotypic? It's just, it is a design in the molecule that the, the NS5As uh, first generations did not have a lot of that. And then the effort was, it started with genotype one. It was to design molecules that fit the, the catalytic site better of the different genotypes, uh, which are similar but not identical. And, uh, and so the velpatosphere component, it just, uh, it fits better. 
although it's very similar to diplodosphere and actually in uh, this is also panhandlesome right Okay, we have a lot of questions, and one more here from the floor, and I'll sort these this out. This like a, a short, very short uh, case um, that I had. It was a triple infected patient with HIV, hepatitis B, suppressed at start of treatment with a tenofovir-based mm -hmm. regimen, and cirro you know, cirrhosis, so HPV, HCV cirrhosis. And... Um, we were monitoring renal, renal function, um, treating with Carvoni. Uh, he was suppressed, like I said, Hep B at the start of treatment, uh, got, became undetectable um, with his HCV, but post-treatment had a Hep B, hmm. uh, very big, 17 million copies wow. of Hep B virus and uh, very high LFTs. His, in the meantime, his Hep B E antigen became positive before it was negative, mm -hmm. and we found out he stopped taking his HIV medication uh -huh. during treatment. So, is this a reactivation of Hep B, or is it uh, is the adherence to the to the Hep B regimen um, the yeah, I mean, I think the adherence is probably the main issue there, but the treatment might not have helped, right? So, I mean, I guess if they were DNA undetectable because of the, the tenofovir, you know, removing the tenofovir, it will go back up, and, you know, and you can get these flares, we know this, so, and people can get sick and decompensate, so that's one of the, why there's that black box warning about stopping it in people who, um, so I would probably consider that one, you know, more of a flare because you remove the tenofovir, I think when we think of the reactivations, there are people we think of whose immune system was controlling the hep B as opposed to a therapy. And when the theory is when you treat the hep C, you've affected sort of the immune response in the liver, and that's allowed hep B to escape what immune response was there and reactivate. So your patient sounds more like you know, remo removing the him <laughs> removing the tenofovir or her themselves. But does, would the hep C itself suppress Hep B? There's, you know, um, we we see that. I mean, it seems, you know, there's sort of the liver seems to choose yes. Hep B or Hep C. It doesn't always. There's Sometimes you'll see both. There are certainly people like that case I described where they have both going on. But in general, you'll tend to have Hep B or Hep C, not both at the same time. And so it appears competition uh, or the immune response to them. Yeah, it seems to be mediated through... Uh, interferon stimulated gene activation and uh, when you eliminate the hep C you basically release that it, and it's it can go either way but it tends to be more C suppressing B rather than the other way so is so that would that be reactivation I don't think your patient had reactivation because I think why they why hep B came back was they removed tenofovir I mean we see that I, that's what I was trying to kind of drive home during the HIV part. I see that all the time just because people kind of forget that Hep B has been controlled for a long time. There's the new drug, you know, Triumic, and it's going to be easier, and then they make that switch, and they just sort of forgot about why they had picked Tenofovir in the first place. Real, I mean, it's easy to do. And so I see, tend to see those cases. They think it's a toxicity of the drug sometimes, and so it's the Hep B. There's, there's actually several other Hep B questions and vaccination questions. I'm going to try and hold that, and if I don't answer them in my talk, then maybe we can cover some of them then, but I have a few quick ones more for okay. you. So short answers, but dual genotype, 
right. What do you do? Treat the harder genotype. And make sure you're treating both. So an example, if you have genotype 3 and 1, you know, you can use cephalosporin but you manage it for the 3. How you doing? Does reinfection on the treatment occur? And, or after treatment, I guess. And can a patient that's 1A then get 1B? Right. So, so, so on treatment, I think it'd be hard. So what we've seen setting, I think one group that's at particularly risk for this are injection drug users who may be switching genotypes. There was a nice uh, study presented at COI last year showing they can switch genotypes just over time because of, you know, continued exposure to different genotypes. So that's a group where, you know, I don't trust a genotype from three years ago on an active, um, a, person who, a, a person who's injecting drugs, right? I want a more recent one to know I'm picking the right one. And if you can get it, a, a pangenotypic regimen might be ideal in that group because then you wouldn't worry about it as much. But um, on treatment, I think it'd be hard to get infected because you're, you know, you're almost like giving prep for, it'd have to be a different, a genotype you weren't covering. And Sofosphere covers everything. I, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that could happen. But shortly after treatment, absolutely, you could get reinfected. Patient with a low-level on-off-again viremia. So test comes back positive, negative, positive, negative. Do you treat them? I would, you know, when they're, I mean, it's, there are some people who just, yeah, have this low level. It's hard to know. Sometimes there, I've had a few who are so low you can't get a genotype. And again, if I could get a pan-genotypic regimen, that's the group I'd use it. They'll probably be really easy to cure. They're not a burden at that level. Are there resources in New York for PCPs to refer treated and cured patients who are at a high risk of reinfection? In to refer for PCPs to refer patients at a high risk of reinfection, presumably uh, either for counseling or for consideration for retreatment. Yeah, I think you have to, I guess, get at why you think they're at high risk for reinfection and try to um, address that, right? So whether it's sexual risk or uh, if it's, you know, we heard, I think all the things John Brooks talked about this morning, like 